Welcome to Global IQ. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I would like to thank all of you for joining today's audiocast, North Korea, Live from Japan, with Dominic Ziegler. This series, which presents timely international issues, is the beginning of what we view as a long and valuable relationship with The Economist, giving our members here and across the United States the chance to interact with the magazine's journalists from around the world. And while today's program focuses on North Korea, we will be taking advantage of Dominic's expertise to also chat about the recent elections in Japan, where the Democratic Party of Japan overwhelmingly defeated the Liberal Democratic Party. It's also an opportunity for our listeners to experience The Economist and see why those who work in the global arena consider the magazine to be their most valuable business resource. Now, we're going to take your questions throughout the broadcast, so please send them to us as they come to mind through the online form that you'll see in your auditorium. And also, we hope that you'll let us know what you think, as our goal is to provide you with another benefit for your council membership. Today's series is proudly sponsored by the University of North Texas, a student-centered public research university with a global reach. In addition to what you heard before we began this audio cast, UNT was founded in 1890 as a teacher's training school in its home to Discovery Park, a nearly 290-acre research park, and the Murphy Center for Entrepreneurship. It has growing collaborations throughout the world, including a dual-degree program with the Universidad Autónoma del Estado de México. This series would also not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. And today we are especially fortunate to be joined by Dominic Ziegler, author of the magazine's Fanyan column on Asian Affairs and the magazine's most recent Tokyo Bureau Chief. He joined The Economist in 1986 as a financial reporter and went on to become finance editor and then Washington correspondent. He was the magazine's China correspondent, based first in Hong Kong and then later in Beijing. He went back to London as finance and economics editor before returning to the States as an acting, as an acting Washington correspondent. Then he stood in for about a half a year as editor of the books and arts section before serving as deputy editor of Intelligent Life, an economist publication. Welcome, Dominic. Thank you very much, Jim. It's very good to be with you today. Well, we certainly appreciate it. You know, only last month it appeared that North Korea was displaying significant and really even promising signs of moderation with the visit of Bill Clinton, the release of the two American journalists, and then just very recently a a meeting with New Mexico's Governor Bill Richardson. Yet all of this, in a sense, seemed to come to an abrupt end uh, last Friday when a letter to the U.N. Security Council, the North announced that extracted plutonium uh, was being weaponized. What, what should we make of all of this? Yeah, well, North Korea also said that it, it was steaming ahead with its uh, uranium programs as well. And, uh, of course, to, uh, to many this will seem like a setback, but to more people uh, it will seem like sort of deja vu all over again. I, it seems to me that this is something of a, of a cycle in, uh, in terms of uh, the way uh, North Korea uh, engages with the outside world. Uh, for much of this year, uh, a lot of the rhetoric was very blustery, and of course uh, the North launched uh, a missile over Japan and then a second uh, uh, atomic test. Um, there's a, there's a there's a, there's a habit, there's a pattern to its behavior, which is to, uh, is to gain attention, to, uh, to, uh, to alarm, um, and then to give a sense of, 
uh, a, a sense of uh, a willingness to sit down and um, in due course to extract concessions and aid from the outside world, the, the uh, U.S. in particular. Now, I think what is likely to change from now on is uh, is uh, the uh, the tolerance and the patience of the outside world to put up with this. I think another possibly uh, fateful change is um, a uh, much clearer expression on the part of North Korea um, that it's not going to give up its weapons. In other words, I think that we're all going to have to come to the realization that the North didn't develop its uh, nuclear programs in order to trade them away, uh, but uh, it, it uh, developed them, as you know, quite a few uh, have suspected for a very long time. It developed them uh, precisely in order to, uh, to use them as a deterrent. Um, in, in our conversation uh, today, I, I would uh, you know, like to suggest that uh, um, whilst the nuclear, uh, the nuclear issue is, is, is crucial, it takes up uh, a lot of our time, both in government, in journalism, in policy circles, um, it nevertheless does run uh, the risk of concentrating on just the nuclear issue uh, of uh, concealing quite a lot else that we're starting to know more about in terms of how North Korea operates, and in particular, um, what kind of a society, what, what, what kind of a life people live. Yeah, I mean, it's about really that. We, really about that, we know, a lot. we know a lot more. I'm sorry, could you say that again? I was just going to say, we know so little about North Korea, it's like a blanket of secrecy. Well, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a dark, uh, it's a dark spot on the map. I mean, I think many uh, participants will have seen the uh, nighttime satellite picture of uh, of, of Northeast Asia that um, shows, you know, the, uh, the Asian economic miracle as uh, great uh, splodges of white light, but uh, darkness out of North Korea. And, of course, you know, just to, just to go back a bit, why, what, what is, I think, so extraordinary about North Korea that we have trouble comprehending um, is that, you know, right at the heart of, uh, of this dynamic region, um, there is a failed state, and this state has the worst human rights record on earth. Um, it it keeps its uh, its population uh, under an extraordinarily powerful grip. Um, one in forty of the uh, of the population are in are in the, the gulag system. One in twenty are in uniform. Uh, the North attempts to. Uh, to keep uh, its population isolated from uh, the outside world. Uh, in particular, it tries to uh, conceal all knowledge about the success of the South Korean uh, economy. Um, but I think that uh, one of the profoundest changes over the past uh, few years is that uh, social forces that were unleashed in particular by the uh, awful famine of a decade ago uh, have now profoundly altered the relationship between uh, ordinary North Korean people and uh, the elite, which is controlled by a very, you know, the regime controlled by a very small elite. You know, when you look at, say, apartheid South Africa or the Soviet Union, um, there is a great deal of emphasis on, on human rights and exchanges and, and calling the attention to some of the uh, atrocities that, that happened in, in some of these countries. Um, I know that the Bush administration had a special envoy for North Korean human rights. I, I, I assume there may be someone still holding that position in the Obama administration. 
Um, what what options do you think the United States has to or or others in the world community to to, to place more attention on human rights in, in North Korea? Um, I think that I think that it would be a mistake to exaggerate what the outside world can do to influence uh, North Korean behavior. Uh, I say that at the outset because a lot of the assumptions of the six-party talks and of other engagement with North Korea are that we can change uh, the regime's uh, behavior. I do think that there are some long-term measures that we can take, um, and I think that they're measures that were learned in terms of the West's uh, dealings with the Soviet Union, a slow undermining of the regime, and a preparation for that regime's eventual collapse, which may come suddenly. The undermining might, uh, for instance, take the form of, uh, not very expensive form either, of funding uh, radio stations uh, outside North Korea, uh, run by, uh, by North Korean dissidents who have escaped the country. Um, that's one, uh, one cheap and uh, possibly very effective technique for letting ordinary North Koreans know uh, what is going on in the outside world and allowing them to compare uh, what their regime says about the outside world and says about their own success internally with what, uh, with, with what they, they see in here. Is any of that um, happening now? Well, the problem is that uh, South Korea, which uh, claims to want unification, um, does actually... Uh, at heart, not uh, desire a sudden uh, collapse of the North, which for the South would be hugely expensive, uh, would command enormous energies, would entail uh, enormous uncertainties. And there's a, there's a long habit in the South of not wishing to antagonize the North too much. Now, that has changed uh, with the current president, Il myung uh in his policy towards the North was fundamentally different from those of uh, South Korea's previous uh, three presidents um, who had launched, uh, you know, who had pursued something of the sunshine diplomacy. Um, but nevertheless, um, the South uh, establishment is, you know, is, is, is not prepared uh, actively to antagonize the North in ways, um, in, in ways that might provoke and um, funding dissident stations is one, is one uh, area of, of, of unwillingness. You know, Dominic, if I could ask, especially in light of Kim Dae-young's uh, recent uh, death, and uh, remember he won the Nobel Peace Prize in, in 2000 for his efforts mm. in, in the Sunshine Policy, maybe you could uh, give us a, a brief on that so that we're, we're current on it, and let me also take this opportunity to remind our participants that they can uh, go into the auditorium and write an email, send a question, and we'll be looking forward to, to, to reading it here on the air. Well, the, the sunshine, <coughs> excuse me, the sunshine policy, from the South's point of view, was predicated on the notion of offering the North incentives that would <coughs> draw the North out of its shell, that would encourage economic reform, <coughs> um, that would foster prosperity in ways that would make eventual reunification um, very much smoother. I think that the premise of the policy was misguided. 
that um, I think what we've come to we've uh, come to see more clearly is that whilst the North has uh, uh, nearby uh, models of countries that have pursued economic development in highly successful ways and in ways that have reinforced the legitimacy of the regimes, and I'm thinking in particular of China and Vietnam, the lessons that uh, North Korea uh, sees in, in those two countries cannot be applied to North Korea, and the very simple reason for that is the South. Uh, China is not in competition with any other uh, with any other uh, regime or state. Taiwan, uh, it needs to impress, but um, Taiwan does not pose a threat to its, to its legitimacy. Um, by contrast, the South poses an enormous threat to uh, Kim Jong-il's regime. And um, modernization is no option, because modernization um, would undermine that regime, uh, which losing its, legitimacy, its legitimacy um, would fall like a you know like a over, overripe fruit right into the hands of South Korea unification would be on South Korea's terms so we tend to think of uh, the north's behavior as being irrational uh, unpredictable but i would like to suggest that from the north's point of view it's entirely logical um, it's entirely uh, explainable um, one, of the, uh, one of the questions that uh, North Korean uh, bureaucrats ask uh, visiting uh, officials and diplomats um, if they get the chance to uh, have more informal con conversations is, uh, what, ha what was the fate of East German bureaucrats after uh, German unification? Um, quite clearly, they are thinking about their future. Um, they know very clearly that uh, under, re under reunification, um, the elite would be wholly unsuited um, to pursuing a successful life uh, in a, a capitalist economy. Um, very few of them would have IT skills, uh, ancient, um, ancient ideological knowledge of, uh, of how economies work. Um, a very unclear um, sense of, uh, of, of business law and practice. Um, these people will be thrown on the scrap heap. So for this reason, the best policy choice for the North uh, is to continue the, the policies that uh, Kim Jong-il and his father before him have pursued for decades. And let's face it, they've been very successful so far in staying in power. I hope at some stage we can talk about the generational shift in the leadership, because I think that that will bring uh, very large consequences for, for uh, the North and for the, and for the whole region. Um, but I think we have to admit that uh, the regime has been enormously successful, has defied all sorts of predictions um, about its imminent demise, um, and is still going, and possibly going as, as, as strongly as it has, uh, as it has done for, 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 uh, for over a decade. Well, a few moments ago, you suggested that perhaps the control in the state, there might be a rapid demise. In fact, one of our listeners just asked, could you provide uh, more details on who will succeed Kim Jong-il? Um, I know there was wide speculation that perhaps he was quite ill, and then when their photos were taken uh, with President Clinton, perhaps uh, some people thought he was 
not quite as weak as, as some had, had surmised. Mm-hmm. Well, I will try, but I, would, I, would, I have to attach a, 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 a very big health warning uh, to this. Uh, we know very little about the inside machinations of the regime and, um, uh, and almost nothing uh, about uh, the very close inner circle of uh, Kim Jong-il himself. Um, so what I say is surmise. There is a whole, um, you know, a whole body of Pyongyang watchers trying to divine what's going on, but almost certainly no uh, foreign state has ever been able to infiltrate its uh, intelligence uh, services into that, into, into that, the elite. Um, the last high-profile um, North Korean to uh, escape the country uh, and to debrief uh, Western South Korean intelligence agencies was more than a decade ago. We know very little, but we can divine a few things. I wonder if I could just reel back a bit, uh, though, before talking about uh, the people and just try to uh, give a sense of the kind of regime uh, I think the North is. Um, it's, it's obviously a communist Regime, but I think that doesn't tell the whole story. It once was Stalinist, but again, that doesn't tell the, the whole story. Um, the, the leadership was forged uh, during the war against uh, Imperial Japan's occupation. Um, and uh, at that time, uh, Kim Il-sung, the uh, eventual founding father of the North Korean state, uh, was a guerrilla leader, uh, at times fighting with the Soviets, at times uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in bands with, uh, with fellow North Korean guerrillas. Um, during that period, um, this band drew very closely together. Almost, they, they forged almost chivalric bonds of, of uh, fealty and loyalty to each other. Um, this is an essential part of the founding myth uh, of the North Korean state. Another essential part, when it was founded, uh, was the elevation of uh, Kim Il-sung to, uh, to near-divine status, something like a kind of uh, sun king. Uh, in fact, um, maybe the, the closest analogy is uh, to the sort of semi-divine status of the pre-war Japanese emperor, which is, of course, ironic since, uh, since the state defines itself so much in terms of its fight against the imperial Japanese. But there you have it. Um, that elite... Uh, was, is extraordinary, was extraordinarily close. Most of the members are dead, but leadership passed on to the second generation around Kim Jong-il. And most of his close associates, those who really control the state and control the army, are the second generation of those, uh, first, uh, those early guerrillas. Now, when uh, Kim Il-sung died in the early 90s, uh, there were many predictions, including uh, by The Economist, that, uh, that the end of uh, that first generation's leadership would mean the end of the regime. But it didn't happen. Uh, one reason was that uh, Kim Jong-il had spent actually 20 years trying to uh, secure his position as the rightful heir and successor to his father. But another reason is that we all underestimated uh, those bonds. And um, those bonds are still strong among the second generation. They know much more about the outside world now than they did uh, at the time of uh, Kim Il-sung's death. Um, but they know from, from their travels in particular to, to China that the world has changed. 
Kim Jong-il knows that. He's been to Shanghai. He's looked at the at the uh, skyscrapers in the Pudong district. He's uh, he's said to have uh, uh, professed admiration. Uh, but I'm sure that it has only uh, reaffirmed uh, the sense that they've got all to stick together uh, or they'll hang separately. The question then, the crucial question, which, uh, which, the, which our participant has, uh, has asked about is, what happens to the next, uh, for the next uh, generation, the next handover of power? What we do know is that Kim Jong-il uh, suffered something last year, probably a stroke. He's certainly not uh, the man he used to be. His paunch is gone. He looks frail. Uh, one of his arms hangs limp. Um, he also appears to be thinking about his own mortality. There had never been uh, any strong sense of succession planning, but this year, this summer, um, it, made, it was made official, rumors that had been circulating for a few months, um, that his third son out of three, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, would be the uh, the rightful successor, and a lot of the sort of uh, a lot of the kind of theatrical behaviour this year in terms of letting off missiles, the, the atomic test, a lot of the strident rhetoric that's been coming out of North Korea can be explained by uh, a, a need uh, for the leadership to show kind of unity and strength internally as a signal to its people that the succession planning was going smoothly. Whether it is going smoothly or not is a different matter. Whether Kim Jong-un can command the loyalty of the third generation elite uh, and of the military is a very moot point. Uh, I feel strongly that because of the lack of preparation and that because of the now you know, weakened ties among this third generation elite, I feel strongly that, uh, that uh, should Kim uh, Jong-il uh, die and be replaced by his son, um, the regime will be extraordinarily uh, weaker uh, than in the, 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 uh, the, the first uh, succession of power from father to son. Um, what can you tell us about the son? I know he was, was, uh, went to school in Switzerland for a while, but we know so little about him. Well, very little, very little is known about him. Um, very little is known about the whole family. He went to school uh, in Switzerland, as you say, Jim. Um, he claimed to be the son of, a, of, a, of an embassy chauffeur. Um, at the school, which he left at 15 or 16 to go back to North Korea, um, he was said to be a keen basketball player. Um, he was said to be uh, he was said to be bossy and, and authoritative on the on the basketball court, um, which is uh, you know which is maybe a good a, a good you know first step in leadership, but hardly adequate to uh, to control a country. Uh, Whose, uh, whose population holds increasing uh, scorn and despair towards the leadership. Well, given the guards that were probably around the court, I suspect he didn't want to, uh, you know, get get pushed around too much. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, I think that the only uh, only two photographs exist of him, uh, as far as, 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 as far as we know. We know almost nothing about him. Um, what we do know is that the uh, official. Uh, propaganda organs of the state are now singing his praises uh, very strongly. This began early this summer. Um, and how old is he? It, he is, I think, 26. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been thoughts that, that the eldest uh, son, Kim Jong-nam, would, uh, would be the natural successor. Um, but he seems more intent on uh, a gambling life in Macau. Uh, you may recall that he was... Uh, 
stopped in Japan in the early part of this uh, decade, coming into the into the, the country uh, on a false Dominican passport. Um, he claimed he was going to to, to Disneyland. Uh, it's 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 not a it, it, it's 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 an entirely plausible claim. Um, and uh, however much he liked Disneyland, I think uh, it became clear to his father that uh, uh, this was not leadership material. The second son um, is said to be not a strong character, uh, effeminate in the words of the uh, the Japanese sushi chef who was employed by uh, the Kim family for, for a number of years. Uh, so the choice has now fallen to the to the third son. But um, the obligations of the, the elite to, to uh, be loyal to this uh, this lad um, are clearly very much weaker uh, than uh, than the the elite's obligations to Kim Jong Il at the time of his succession. And even then, that succession was not clearly in place for at least two, two years after the death of uh, of his father. If I could, I'd like to. Um go to one of the questions. In fact, we have several questions from our listeners regarding China. Uh, uh, one says, China seems reluctant to press North Korea to veer away from nuclear weapons despite their proximity. Why are they so team, uh, uh, seemingly timid? And um, I'm reading uh, from a report that I read where the ambassador to the United Nations, when he voted in favor of the recent revolution, um, he said diplomatic means should be employed rather than merely imposing sanctions and and the resolution should not adversely, and I'm quoting, adversely impact the country's development or humanitarian assistance to it. Um, so I was wondering if you might really give us a greater insight into China's, uh, China's views on, on how they should handle uh, North Korea and specifically the nuclear situation. Well, it's a very good question, and there is a big debate within China about how to deal with uh, North Korea. Um, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a, there's a lot of disagreement with, within uh, academic and intellectual circles about whether China is pursuing the right policy, but I think it's unlikely to change. What's driving the policy uh, is quite simple. Uh, the, the, uh, although China is frustrated with uh, North Korea, which for long it kind of considered to be a sort of little brother, something that North, that North Korea itself always resented, um, its, its, its frustration, um, though, it cannot show itself too obviously. The, the reason is that China does not want to undermine North Korea's regime. Uh, if it does so, it risks regime collapse, and with collapse comes the possibility uh, not just uh, of tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of North Koreans flooding across the Chinese border. Now, there are risks of instability uh, in China uh, to that scenario. Uh, one is, is clearly that to have uh, such large numbers of unemployed uh, people causes social strain. Another is that there are ethnic Korean Chinese who live in Chinese areas along the border with North Korea. Uh, Beijing has never been uh, entirely sure about uh, their patriotism and loyalty. And um, there are fears that a, that a, a unified Korea um, might make claims upon those border regions. Uh, in brief, China knows the, the, the risk of instability. In fact, it's doing everything it can to prop up the regime. And one of the, one of the sort of survival routes uh, for the regime is trade and aid with, uh, between the, from China to North Korea. We don't know how much aid China sends across, but uh, the best guess is that something like half of all uh, China's aid goes to North Korea. Now, that's a pretty big percentage 
uh, when you consider China's aid obligations, for instance, uh, on the African continent uh, and in the Pacific and other parts of Asia. Well, we tend to think of, of North Korea, at least in this country, as being very isolated. But um, as you mentioned, you know, it has extensive relations with China, and then it has diplomatic relations with the UK and Australia and the Philippines. And give us better insight about really how it uh, engages with other countries, and and are the sanctions working? Well. Um it has always had, it has long had diplomatic relations with uh, communist or former communist countries. Um, it established fresh relations with some Western nations uh, in the late 90s and early part of this decade. Um, I know that some of these, uh, some of these countries now regret having established embassies in North Korea. Uh, Let me just ask you, I mean, what was the driving force for these relations to be established at that period of well, time? Yes, C commercial was one. Relations did seem to be it did seem to be warming with the outside world. Um, this was, of course, you know, this was before the Bush axis of evil speech in 2002. Um, and uh, the, the, the West, certainly Europe, has has n never given up the hope of uh, commercial uh, of, of commercial prospects in North Korea. Um, with hindsight, I think most of these embassies don't regret. Uh, having established them, uh, however hard it is to run them, because it has uh, opened a window uh, onto North Korea's internal workings at a time of, I think, quite profound social change, and I'm very happy to talk about those at some point in our conversation. Um, but in terms, of, uh, in terms of North Korea's relations with the outside world, embassies that it establishes around the world are crucial for earning hard dollars, and this is often done illegally. Um, there was very little in the way of trade, for instance, between uh, North Korea and Britain, although North Korea did uh, once buy a, a, an old uh, run-down beer brewery in the south of England. Uh, it dismantled it and shipped it back. So uh, there is a little bit of uh, trade. That uh, brewery is now up and running in, in Pyongyang. Um, but embassies are a crucial part of the network uh, for um, illicit trade, for uh, arms deals, uh, drug deals, counterfeit money. That's less of that now than uh, earlier this decade, but uh, it may still be happening. Um, the diplomatic pouch is useful for uh, for bringing luxury goods back for the elite. Um, hard currency, you know, hard currency routes are provided by uh, the embassy network. Um, with China, there is uh, there's more of an economic interaction. Uh, maybe more than most people uh, outside realize. There's petty trade, which sprang up uh, around the time of the, the, the famine 10 years ago. That's to say trade um, by you know, North Koreans, individuals, uh, with Chinese uh, providing cheap consumer goods, uh, staples, food, and so on. There is um, official aid, which is significant, from China to North Korea, oil, uh, grain. Um, and increasingly over the last few years, there's been Chinese investment in uh, north, particularly in areas with uh, mining resources. Chinese have taken over a number of mines that uh, were not being uh, run efficiently by North Koreans. And so Chinese money and investment is starting to trickle around the north. It's resented, but it is having an, an economic impact. 
Uh, again, uh, another one of our listeners who just asked about North Korea's uh, nuclear missile test, saying that they are perhaps meant more for marketing their weapons than, than threatening the West. And it's certainly true that North Korea has been uh, re reportedly um, sending weapons uh, uh, to other countries, um, and they've been caught and uh, interdicted in, in the seas. Um, really, how, how, what, what are their motivations here? Well, um, yes, yes, uh, our participant is absolutely right. There is a marketing aspect um, to this. Uh, there's also the, uh, the there's also the fact that you know you 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 have to at some stage test missiles. Uh, you, you can't uh, you you can't rely on the theory. They have to be they have to be tested, and however much they might look a failure, these launchings, uh, something is always learned from them. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of relations with other countries, um, there is no doubt that. Uh, North Korea has close military ties with Syria and with Iran and possibly others. Um, how much information is shared, how much uh, help these countries give North Korea and vice versa is not clear, um, but it's thought that Syrians uh, in particular and Iranians have been closely involved with North Korea's nuclear program. Um, and of course, blueprints and the like um, are very easy to put on a uh, you know, on a disc and uh, take out of the country. So there's almost no way that we can control that. Um, small arms is another source of hard currency. Um, I think with, uh, you know, I think it's possible to prevent the North from uh, from exporting vast quantities of, quantities of those. I think sanctions probably um, don't work, but I think that, uh, that interdiction on the high seas probably um, does have a, a deterrent effect uh, in terms of North Korea's ability to uh, export arms. And, you know, how are these arms going? Are they on fishing boats? And, and, and who, is, uh, who is stopping the traffic? Are they navies uh, uh, from, uh, from Kuwait or the UAE? I mean, what, what really well, well, re work? Yeah, well, re recently there was the case of a, of a ship that um, was heading down towards Southeast Asia. This was earlier this summer. Um, it was thought to be carrying arms to uh, the junta in Myanmar. Um, now it's not certain that the ship did have uh, did have weapons. It's likely, but not certain. Um, but if it didn't, if it didn't uh, have arms aboard, uh, it might have been a test to see exactly how successful um, a North Korean ship might be in uh, evading the uh, various states, that, uh, starting with Japan, South Korea, the U.S. of course, with the Seventh Fleet here in, in the, the West Pacific, Singapore, Thailand. It may have been testing these states to see uh, how, how uh, readily it could evade their, uh, their surveillance. Uh, in this case, it failed. Um, just in yesterday's paper, New York Times, there was a story that North Korea opens dam flow and, and several, uh, I guess, six uh, uh, South Korean citizens were, were swept away from the Imjin River. Uh, great speculation about whether or not this was done on purpose or was an accident. Uh, you being there, I suppose it's a, a major story in, 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 in the Asian press. Uh, what are you hearing about this? Yes, well, uh, of, of course, it caused great uh, the, the, the flood caused great consternation in South Korea and was certainly picked up in the region. Um, as you say, the, the South Korean government claims that this was uh, done intentionally. Um, I think we have no way of knowing. What we do know is that. Um, the, the fear of such floods um, has been around for quite some time. And in fact, 
you know, a dam was proposed, uh, I think, two decades ago. It was finally finished in 2005. The Peace Dam, built uh, in South Korea, an enormous uh, uh, project uh, that looms up out of uh, the valley uh, close to the border. The point of the Peace Dam um, was precisely to stop intentional uh, flooding by the north that uh, might cause devastation in the south. It brings home how very close, how cheek by jowl the two countries uh, are. And, of course, this is something that North Korea can, uh, can leverage uh, and often does leverage uh, in terms of its rhetoric and its, its actions. Um, and this is one of the reasons why responding to the North is such a, an issue. Um, South Korea's dense population is very, very close to the North. Um, we've seen just in the last few days how susceptible it is to floods. Think how much more susceptible it would be to missile strikes on the capital. Absolutely. Well, you know, that was one of the questions I wanted to focus on a bit more. You touched on it, but what pressure is there on unification, um, you know, family unification? And you know, uh, obviously what happened in Germany is it must be of concern. And if you could also elaborate on some of the uh, uh, complex like this Kaisong complex, which I understand is just across the the border and, and, and acts a little bit like the uh, Macadoras that we have uh, here on our own border with, between Texas, Texas and Mexico. Yes, yes. Well, the way I, the way I uh, sense in the South this debate about unification is that everybody pays lip service to it, but everybody wants to prolong um, the act for as long as possible. It almost certainly will happen. It will happen because at some point the, the North Korean regime will collapse. It may be very messy, but it'll happen. Um, as I say, the Sunshine Policy was designed to make the eventual unification as painless as possible. I think that uh, you know that option looks increasingly less like, likely. So um, there's, there's contingency planning, but it's not publicised by the South uh, for the eventual date of unification. It envisages a collapse, vast numbers of refugees. Not much is said about it. But I think there are various assumptions. I think that after unification, um, North Koreans will still be curtailed in their ability to travel. Uh, I think that they won't be able to head to the south. Um, I think that, uh, that um, you know, that, that, that this, this knowledge of, of uh, eventual unification um, uh, actually, well, let, let me rephrase, um, the, the the, the, the unification is on, on both sides is, is a rhetoric, is what I'm, is what I'm trying to uh, suggest. Um, but both sides uh, don't, wish it, don't wish it at all soon. And because of that, I think that um, very little long-term, deep, integrated planning is being done by the South. In, in, in our remaining minutes, um, before we switch to, to Japan, I'd like to ask you to focus a bit more on some of the options uh, for the Obama administration. Uh, President Obama certainly has enough on his plate right now with uh, uh, health care reform in, in Afghanistan, but in today's Wall Street Journal, there was quite a strong editorial, and um, uh, I'll, I'll just read this, this last two sentences. Um, uh, the admission shows that John Bolton, uh, specifically referring to the admission of, of last Friday, shows that John Bolton and other Bush administration hawks 
uh, weren't hyping anything when they accused the North of violating their Clinton-era commitments. It also shows that the negotiators at state were at least very gullible when they decided to downplay the uranium program. Now it's the Obama's team turn to deal with the reality of the North's intransigence and dishonesty. And this time they don't have the Bush administration to kick around anymore. Um, you know, what, what challenges then, in, in light of something like this, does someone like Stephen Bosworth, who is the another one of the Clinton administration's special emissaries, special representative, uh, what does he have to do now? Yes, well, I mean, John, John Bolton's comments, I hadn't read that, but I mean, that, that, uh, that's part of the course from him. I think that, uh, uh, however much he would wish to go back to a sort of, you know, Bush one, uh, era in terms of relations, uh, between, uh, the U.S. and North Korea, um, you know, I think one of the failings of, uh, of George Bush in his first term was to define North Korea as, uh, a member of the axis of evil without having a kind of backup, uh, policy for what it should do then. Um, I think that nobody, uh, in fact, either in uh, the Bush administration's second term or uh, in, the current, in the current Obama administration has uh, any illusions about uh, the North and its intentions. Um, I think that uh, particularly after the North's uh, clear statement this summer that it did not want to continue the six-party talks, that uh, there, are, there are limits to diplomacy. Nevertheless, I think that, in essence, we'll see continuity. Um, that's to say, uh, the, the door open to uh, further uh, discussion, deliberation within the six-party format. The because we really haven't moved away from the six-party, the obligation that it be as part of the six-party talks, have we? Well, that's right. I mean, there are signals being sent out by the administration that suggest uh, you know, bilateral dialogue might be possible, but it would have to be within the six-party framework. And the point of that, it may sound theological, but the point of that is to try to um, prevent North Korea from dividing and ruling uh, the members of the, uh, of, of, the, of the talks, as it has done many times in the past. But as I say, I think few people have illusions. We, we know that these talks uh, are very likely to fail. The argument for continuing them, or at least for keeping the door open, is that, uh, is that scenarios might change. This is, after all, why, the, uh, why, why Bill Clinton in 94 engaged with uh, North Korea and offering uh, two light water reactors and lots of aid. Uh, it never paid that aid, partly because it thought the regime would collapse in the, in, in the meantime. We have, to, uh, you know, we have to bear in the back of our minds the possibility of, of uh, regime collapse. That's one reason for continuing. Another reason for continuing is that uh, you know, we might hope that the regime's um, sense of priorities changes. Um, it doesn't now, but it, but it may be that it, in future the cost-benefit analysis of the regime, again, with, uh, particularly if, if, if we're talking about a post-Kim uh, Jong-il world, uh, those, you know, those analyses may change. That's a reason for keeping the door open. But I think that uh, ultimately we're, we're limited. Um, we must engage. We must uh, enforce sanctions that don't entirely work, we must, uh, I, I'm afraid, keep offering aid to a brutal regime um, because the humanitarian consequences of, of withdrawing that um, are, are too terrible to contemplate. And we have seen that the regime is perfectly prepared uh, to allow its people to die, to stay in power. Um, you know, we don't know the exact number of deaths in the famine in the mid to late 90s, but uh, but best guess is our sort of 600 to 800,000 people. 
the regime doesn't care about them. We know that. So we're tied in, in into this process. Uh, and frankly, I think that our options are, are at this stage, uh, limited. Uh, people like Bolton pour scorn on the, on the, the six-party process, on always being uh, taken in by the, by the North. Fool me once, shame, you know, shame on you. Fool me again and again, shame on me. Um, but I, I do think our options are constrained. One of the things I've always been curious about, and you mentioned this a little while ago, I mean, there's so many refugees that are crossing over to China and going elsewhere. Does the regime then let them out? Because obviously, I mean, they are. It seems like they have the ability to control the borders. If I could just give you a quick tale about the, the borders, because I think it's fascinating. Um, we know a lot more about uh, social life within North Korea because of the vast numbers of uh, refugees who crossed the border into China at the time of the, of the famine. Um, since then, food supplies uh, have improved within North Korea, uh, and um, aid has, has, uh, has, has been felt. Um, it's allowed the, the North Korean regime to, to uh, clamp down somewhat on some of the informal movements of people and goods that took place uh, during and after the famine. Um, nevertheless, we are able to piece together a much better picture about what's happening inside uh, North Korea from uh, North Koreans who crossed over into China. And the picture is one in which the state has, in essence, lost uh, control. It no longer has engenders the kind of fear that it did. It no longer has control over uh, economic resources. In fact, the state has broken down to, a, to, to, to the extent that um, you know, parts of it are now freelancing in the new uh, black market economy. This market economy sprang up as a kind of coping uh, mechanism to deal with the huge strain and stress of the famine. Um, but it's also changed people's attitudes towards the regime, and I think this is the most profound change, which we haven't had a chance to talk about uh, yet, but I think it is the most profound change, and it's one that is more than trying to peer into the regime, one, it's, it's much more me measurable because, as I say, we, we, we have the data from dissidents, uh, refugees, North Koreans in China. You know, we're running out of time, and I want to be sure we have a, a bit to talk about Japan, but how do you get your information? Are, are you able to, to, to go to North Korea, and, and, and when was the last time you went, if, if, if so, and how does that work? Well, as part of the, as part of the health warning I, I, uh, I, I gave at the beginning, I should have uh, added that I've never been to North Korea. I've tried uh, countless times to get in. Um, so uh, that should, you know, more than anything, qualify my views. However, what I do do is when I'm in South Korea, I speak to dissidents, uh, North Koreans, as much as I can, as well as to aid agencies who have, uh, I think, a very uh, good, uh, rich and uh, deep view of uh, of life in the north, um, particularly in the provinces outside Pyongyang. When we visit as journalists, uh, when my colleagues visit as journalists, they go to Pyongyang. They're not allowed anywhere else and they are accompanied. Um, they don't see much. Um, I go to the Chinese border and their um, aid groups, uh, as well as uh, Christian churches, are highly active in helping the underground population of North Koreans, which at its peak, may have numbered 200,000, is now maybe 30, 40, or 50,000. Nobody knows for sure. Um, but these are people who have uh, recently come out of North Korea. Some go in and out of uh, the country uh, regularly, uh, bribing guards. They might, you know, there are all sorts of networks and ways of, uh, 
of, of, if you have the money and if you have the connections of doing this. Of course, there are just straightforward economic refugees as well. And um, speaking to those people there on the border um, really does help uh, draw up a much more informed picture of what's actually going on inside, inside the country. And one thing that is absolutely clear uh, that was not a decade ago is that uh, people know very well that uh, their regime is lying to them. They know extremely well that the South is far more prosperous uh, than, the, 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 than, than the North uh, says. The North still claims that it's an it's a, a abjectly poor colony of the U.S. Nobody, except for school children, maybe, uh, believes that now. You've certainly given us a, a, a lot to think about. I, I, I appreciate it. And, and allowing five minutes for Japan doesn't give it justice. I, I hope, indeed, we can come back to it in a, in, a, in a month or two. But, you know, do give us your insight on what's happened in the, in the, on the September 6th or, or on the election in Japan. We'll have its next prime minister, I guess, uh, in, a, in about a week or so. Yes. Well, um, my sense is that some of, a lot of the reaction in the West has been rather subdued, but they, you know, the, the, the view of certainly uh, the British press has been, well, here is a consensual country. Um, we, ha we have two parties whose policies uh, do not differ in any great uh, degree. Um, we have uh, two rival party leaders uh, who are both the grandsons of, uh, of uh, former prime ministers, um, and that there were, nobody was jumping into fountains uh, on election night as one might have expected if one was outside Japan. Nevertheless, I think that rather than this being a, a, you know, a, a, a vote for sort of some kind of continuity, it marks a profound change, however similar the party's programs are. And the change is uh, most of all in the, the structure of government. Uh, in the past, political decisions were made not in the cabinet, not in the government, not by prime ministers, but they were made... Um, in the, in the uh, corridors of the ministries, um, and policy was often countermanded by powerful party politicians from the ruling party who were not in government. I think the profound change is that the Democratic Party of Japan is promising uh, to, to, to change the way uh, politics is conducted and the way policy is made. And the signs are that it is absolutely serious about uh, seeing through that change. It will be messy. Uh, the party will appear naive uh, at times, there'll be many mistakes, um, but it's it's flowing in the direction of history, and uh, it's uh, it, it's about time too. Now, one of the things that seems to be really impacting Japan is the aging of its population, and uh, I read recently that Japan may really need to uh, seek more immigrants and open its border to foreign workers, which is uh, quite quite a change. Well, things happen slowly in Japan. Um, I don't think we should expect to see uh, free immigration uh, happening anytime soon, but the debate is, is starting. Um, and a lot of things that seemed impossible, uh, that were not even you know, conceivable on the political agenda, uh, are now starting to be floated. There's no doubt that uh, immigration is going to have to be part of the way that uh, Japan in the long run deals with it's a demographic, demographic change, you know, a, a shrinking population, a graying one. For instance, uh, there's, no, there's, there's no doubt that if uh, Japan's elderly are to be, are to be uh, well served and well looked after, they'll have to be trained nurses from other parts of, of Asia. One, uh, one 
aspect of it that, that might uh, interest participants is, is, is Japan's foreign policy and whether that will change. Uh, in particular, whether we can expect anything to change uh, in uh, the fundamentals of uh, the United States Security Alliance with Japan. And um, again, where I think most commentators suspect things will tick along pretty much as they have done, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, some, some adjustments, not profound change, but some pretty big adjustments to the relationship. Um, both Yukio Hatsuyama, the new uh, prime minister, and uh, the sort of fourth in the party, uh, Ichiro Ozawa, both believe strongly that Japan should be what they call something more of a normal country. And by that they mean uh, a country that doesn't play uh, a sort of subservient uh, little brother role to the U.S. in terms of security, that it forges its own foreign policy. That, um, of course, the alliance remains the key relationship that Japan has uh, in the world, um, but that uh, Japan does not go along. Uh, but with specifically, what do you think American adventure? What do you think they might do specifically then to, to sort of indicate I, this? I, I think, for instance, I think, for instance, uh, that the, the Japan's deep pacifist uh, convictions mean that uh, if America asks Japan to be involved militarily uh, in uh, any overseas theater. Um, Japan will be extremely unwilling unless there is clear UN backing. And at that point, I think that we're, le we're less likely to see uh, troops uh, or naval ships involved as they are, for instance, now in a refueling mission in the Indian Ocean in support of efforts in Afghanistan. I think we'll see much more of the kind of things that actually Japan has plenty of, uh, you know, uh, reconstruction crews, uh, police, uh, police training specialists, um, people involved in, 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 in rebuilding uh, torn countries. Um, I think that this generally can be welcomed by the state so long as, uh, you know, so, so long as the desire to be uh, more, in a more normal country, a more equal partner, as they also put it, uh, is matched by uh, greater uh, commitment in other forms overseas, and particularly in Asia. Um, and I, I think that it's not yet certain that, uh, that Japan has the appetite uh, to show those commitments, which also entail risks. But I, 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 my hunch is that uh, that is the direction in which Japan will go, and although it will maybe uh, unsettle some policymakers in the U.S. at first, I think in the end a, a Japan that's more confident about what it does in the world is good for everybody. Well, I think we'll need to come back to Japan in a few weeks, and I hope you'll give us that, that, that opportunity. Dominic, we are so grateful to you and all of your colleagues at The Economist for sharing with our members your expertise. It's certainly been a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for getting up so early. And I uh, also want to encourage all of our listeners to become Economist subscribers. I suspect that most are, but uh, I know uh, all uh, always enjoy reading your Banyan column. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank The Economist for its important partnership with the World Affairs Council and UNT and its 37,000 students from 125 countries for sponsoring not just today's program, but our upcoming 2009 audiocast. Remember, together the economists and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's presentation. You may now disconnect.